Abolition. Abolition. In October 1669, the Virginia Assembly enacted a law removing criminal penalties for people who killed slaves that resisted authority. That practice would not be considered murder because the, quote, premeditated malice, unquote, element of murder could not be formed against one's own property. In the following years, Virginia continued to reduce protection for slaves. In 1723, the assembly removed all penalties for the killing of slaves. That meant that an enslaved person could be killed for an offense as minor as picking bad tobacco. In effect, enslavers could kill enslaved people with impunity in colonial era Virginia. Laws in the other colonies were also weak when it came to protecting the lives of slaves. Following the American Revolution, many states created penalties for killing slaves. But the loophole permitting the killing of an enslaved person during, quote, correction, or to prevent resistance, remained. As a result, slave owners were rarely punished for killing enslaved people throughout the history of slavery in America. At what point? Did poor European people that used to rebel against the ones that forced them to work land they didn't own and die with nothing of their own, what was it that turned their hearts so that they start to identify with power even though they're powerless, identify with wealth even though they're broke? It's the invention of whiteness. They call you white by white fans. Damn what they talking about, you man first. Stand and curse, the dirty man that first crafted the plan. Spread it through the land and shattered the damn earth. This is sickest system that ever existed. Since this, earth's beginning commenced its twisting. How you convince a man with rare blood to bleed? Completely devalue what a human being means. Nobody called themselves white several centuries ago. They were living off the land with the trees. They were Dutch, they were Irish, they were German, they were Greek with culture, families, tradition, and beliefs. And rich blood suckers saw new soil to seize. And they ain't about to get their hands dirty, cracker, please. Swindled you to trade in your identity, showed you pie in the sky, promised you a peace with symbolic image in the scripture that you read. White holy angels and black evil demons. You were so starving that you started to believe it. Now you die colonizing for somebody else's greed. Don't you see the overseers is still in the field? Every breath of water and breeze is still in the jail. You will never own that farm or the prison for real. Terrified of the time when your victims rebel. Listen, you don't fear them, you fear the blood on your hand. All the ugly you done to that man, that woman, that child, that land, that sea, that sky. That they look you in the eye and demand that you tell them why. All them years whipping and lying and killing. Generations of poison and bombing and drilling. All designed to turn the hearts of your children to stone. Got post-traumatic slave master syndrome. How the hell are y'all gonna heal, be made whole? You identifying with the people in control. You can't throw a human in the bottom of a boat. Unless somebody got a damn chain around your soul. In that middle passage asking who got stole. A hot auction block where your blood ran cold. And every day a cop let them shots explode. You're gonna have to find a way to regain your soul. I said that I can't see itself. It can't sit back, critique itself, and peep itself. It need help. Take the sword, for example. No matter how hard it can't carve its own hands. Said that I can't see 
itself It can't sit back, critique itself And peep itself, it need help Take the sword for example No matter how hard it can carve its own hands uh. The inner city of our cities is like another country The rules are different, it's almost like you need a passport there the police treat people differently. When I lived out in the suburbs, if my car broke down on the highway and a state trooper pulled up behind me, I wouldn't have been scared. I'd have been glad. But young man after young man after young man have been beaten by the police. And the only way you know, you got to be with the people. And we live separated. We go in air-conditioned cars and we stick on our interstates and hang out with people just like us. Well, by God's grace, I was brought into this and seeing how race plays a part and how poverty plays a part. And my job is to go out to the American people. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard a set titled The Price of Your Whiteness with Diami Bailey explaining the casual killing act of October 1669 and beyond, followed by Before They Called You White by Brother Ali. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at our website, abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parkus. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Yusuf. Hey, peace, Max. Wow, good to be back, man. Last week we talked about the money machine created on slavery and genocide. We showed the clear documented control of U.S. legislation and legislators by a cabal of corporate demons who perpetually profit off our suffering. A not-so-secret society called the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. This week our focus is on the Casual Killing Act of 2020. Political policies and decisions dictated by ALEC and others that don't just put millions at risk. They are consciously deciding to let certain groups die as a sacrifice to the God called capitalism. I know it's deep and dark. So before we dive in, let's go ahead and get our week started off with a few words from Yusuf and myself about what's been going on this week. So what's, what's been happening, Yusuf? I know you've been doing a lot oh, of man, man, finals man, with your coding and things. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a week. It's been a week, man. That's what I can say. You know, it's just been one of them weeks, you know, and this this bizarre thing just keeps turning, 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 turning every day. We're going to see where this thing is going to go. But, you know, hopefully we put some uh shed some light on some things, you know, in tonight's broadcast so we can help people get a better understanding of, you know, what's really going on and how deep this thing really goes. What you think of that song by Brother Ali? And the whole mix, actually. I think that was the first time you heard it, right? Yeah, that's the first time I heard that one, and I like Brother Ali. You know, it's this one track that I really love. It's called Welcome, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, not what, the hook is Welcome to United, Welcome to the United uh, Snakes. Uncle Sam yeah. Goddamn, that's the name of the song. Yeah, Uncle Sam Goddamn, you know. yep. yeah. Yeah, I love Brother that Ali song. Mm-hmm. And just if our listeners, if you want to hear abolition music, what we've played on this program, you can just go to youtube.com slash abolition today. The playlist is called Abolitionist Music. Uh, trust me, it's something you want to just like put on repeat. It is pretty awesome. We do not be playing as you just heard. 
Uh, I want to say, I want to offer well wishes and wishes for safety and security to mothers today who are universally recognized as Mother's Day. Um, Absolutely. Indeed. Especially to my wives and daughters. I am currently surrounded by all women. So two daughters and five granddaughters are here. <laughs> and they're all trying to be quiet because Pop Pop is on the radio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to give a shout out to my son, my oldest son Nelson. His birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, son. Um, hey, Alpha happy Woodstock. birthday, Nelson. Yeah, indeed. Happy birthday, Nelson. So you, so you had Pop- Nelson and, and Justice not too long apart. Right. Uh, one is in April and the other is in May. Wow. Mm-hmm. So he's older by uh, a, a month. <laughs> Man, so yeah. Uh, and and uh, Albert Woodfox was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, we both read that recently. So congratulations to Albert Woodfox. Yes. I mean, 40, 40 years, 44 years in solitary confinement. And that did not take away the fire in his heart to not only see freedom for himself, but for others around him. And since getting his freedom after 44 years, he has uh, spent his life really trying to correct a lot of the wrongs that he has been subject to and everyone else is being subject to. So congratulations. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I got to meet him when we were down in uh, Washington, D.C. for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. You know, and yes. the brother is, you know, very deep, very intelligent, you know, and just a beautiful soul, man. So, yes, definitely congratulations to him. Right. Uh, him and Brother Robert King was there. As a matter of fact, uh, Brother King spoke right after me. Uh, he and I were two of the keynote speakers at the end of that. And uh, just to spend some time in their presence and absorb their knowledge and understanding was a blessing indeed. Um Good news on our part, man, and congratulations to my sister Coletta Harris uh, from Real to Real Productions. The documentary No Address is now available uh, for sale uh, on the market. Uh, they put it through the awards circuit, won an award and everything, and it's featuring discussions and spoken word from yours truly, Max Barthes. And oh, I got to get that. Okay, got the king yeah, and the so, queen on there. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah, I see no you have doubt. the uh, – are you going to give out the uh, information, the link information? Yes, uh, I'm sure that our sister Jeanette Smith has provided it already on our page, Abolition Today, on Facebook. But you can also go to watch.x, the letter X, experience.tv. And just uh, Google no address or search no address on that site, and you'll find it right there. Uh, it is well done. It's about homelessness in Columbia, South Carolina, used as a microcosm to show what the rest of the country is going through as well. Uh, so many things that were uncovered, and the stars of this program were the homeless people themselves, many who did not even survive long enough to see the end of this film be released. Uh, but it is extremely powerful. And, of course, you know, if I'm in it, I'm talking about how the, crim- the criminalization of the homelessness uh, population plays a major role in what's going on, where instead of trying to help people, they are putting them in jails and prisons where they can generate an income for that county. Right. So, yeah, congratulations, Carletta. Um, and uh, finally, this May 13th will be the 35th anniversary of the 1985 Osage Avenue Philadelphia bombing, where 11 people were killed, including five children, 
61 homes were destroyed, and more than 250 citizens were left homeless. Many of the survivors ended up being moved from their neighborhoods to literally a game preserve. Apartments are a game preserve. And this was done by our own state, two people in, this, in the United States called the Move Nine. But it really was done to all of us. This, this was done to all of us. Yusuf? Yeah, you, you touched on it right there at the end, you know, that it was done to all of us. You know, some people just see it as just like, oh, it was just this one little group. But it just shows that at any given moment, you know, it can be done to any of us, you know. And who was it, Pam or Pam Africa or Ramona Africa that that, that we met in D.C. as well? It was I can't Ramona recall which one. There, yeah. It was a hell of a day. Okay. Ramona Africa was there. Even Mumia uh, uh, called in to be a speaker from prison on that day right. in D.C. Right. And it just Amazing shows how we're all we're all connected and we can't see all of these things happening as isolated events. These are all interconnected, you know. So everyone just, you know, remember 6221 Osage Avenue can happen right where you live, right in your living room, right where you're sitting right now to anyone listening, whether it's on the radio or over the Internet, wherever. You know, right. this it, is it, just it, not an isolated incident. Uh, we'll probably want to talk about it more. And if you've never heard of the movie, fine. Uh, maybe we can introduce it with a, with a, with a clip. Uh, we there there is an, a documentary out called "Let the Fire Burn" from 2013. Uh, let's just play the trailer from that clip so you can understand what it is we're talking about. May 13, 1985, years of conflict between the city of Philadelphia and a small urban group known as MOVE ended in a violent day-long encounter. It was one of the most devastating days in the modern history of this city. The big story tonight is the effort to evict MOVE. The effort has turned into a disaster. Can you describe the philosophy of MOVE? We were being taught about the corruption in this system. The system, the establishment, you. Did you consider the MOVE organization to be a terrorist group? People who threaten to shoot and kill neighbors, police. I think that's a pretty adequate description of the word terrorist. Where is it written that we could not have a religion of our own? The system had one intention, to either kill MOVE people or to put us in prison as long as possible. It's just that simple. More than three dozen Philadelphia policemen surrounded the building after a MOVE member was spotted on the roof wearing a hooded mask and carrying a shotgun. We intend to seize control of the house. We will do it by any means necessary. Every one of us knew that someone was going to die. Did you have a concern that the people inside that house might be in physical danger? Excuse me. To yes, ma'am. Ask me, well, what we concerned is complete insanity. There has just been a huge explosion here. We don't know what it means, but it just shook the whole place. It was a huge blast. Did it ever occur to you that this might have been a dangerous device? Yes, ma'am. When the fire got real heavy, we couldn't breathe. Then that's when we started yelling. At you. What did you say? What did you yell? We want to come out. There's no one that I know in city government that would intentionally go out there to burn those people to death. There's no one that I know of could do that. 
I remember as soon as I scooped him up, he said to me, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. That was Let the Fire Burn 2013 documentary and the official trailer. Uh, it's the t- time in America where, again, black community was under assault, literally bombed and burned and killed men, women, and children, and then imprisoned the survivors. You there, Yusuf? You might be on mute. All right. Well, as I was saying, that was Let the Fire Burn, uh, and we are here uh, approaching the anniversary, 1985. This wasn't from, you know, 1920. It wasn't from 1908. This was 1985 where a mayor and a police chief made the decision to drop explosives from a helicopter onto the roof of an home of, uh, and, and really it, it inflamed the whole community. It caught fire to the whole community and burned down uh, multiple houses. And as I mentioned before, some of the survivors ended up on a game preserve. Uh, that was where they rehoused them. And I don't mean like in a field or something like that, but literally on a game preserve with housing there. All right. Am I speaking to the wind? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to unmute uh, Jeanette, Jeanette, can you hear me? Because uh, I'm not sure if I'm even broadcasting. Oh, um, you are. I didn't realize I was on mute. Oh, okay. All right, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just talking away, and I'm like, Dag, why do I keep stepping on Max? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, there you go, bro. You got the mic. Yeah, I was I was saying, you know, uh, well, just to put the names of the – the mayor at the time was Woodrow Wilson Good, you know, and I mean, it matters. He was a black man. Well, he's a black man. He's still alive. Hey, isn't and, he the one that said by any means necessary, really mocking the death of Malcolm X? Right. And then you have uh, Gregor Sambor. He was the police commissioner. So these are the architects of that of that massacre, that crime against humanity. This is uh, why the topic today is the Casual Killing Act, because this is the Casual Killing Act's repercussions. It's the, the legacy of that. And although it may not be still in writ, it is certainly in policy on a number of documented occasions where uh, certain groups get to decide who lives and dies, and there is no, re- no repercussions specifically when it happens to people in the black community. Um, Yusuf, did you want to any, add anything on to the Move 9 discussion, or should we go into the next part? I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, everyone is home now. You know, for those who aren't aware, uh, Brother Delbert Africa came home in January, and Chuck uh, Chuck Sims Africa came home in February. So that, that, everybody's, you know, home? everybody's home now. Mumia's still up in there. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't free all the political prisoners. You know, we know there's Mumia yep. Abu Jamal and Imam Jamil mm-hmm. Alamin, formerly known as Rap Brown. Yep. You know, and the, the list just goes on. It's a whole list all of names. Well, uh, they're having a get together, as a matter of fact. Uh, see, I haven't 
in our programming page up here, uh, I don't know if they're calling it a get-together. I probably misspoke in that term of language. Uh, here it is, the 35th anniversary of the moon bombing. Come join us Wednesday, May 13th, 6 p.m., with a live panel discussion streaming on Instagram and Facebook with the MOVE members and guest speakers below. Uh, and the list of speakers is Marsha L. Dyson, uh, Lynn Washington, Wallow267, Ted the writer, Sherry Gregg, and Walter Palmer. And in uh, will be Jen, Janet Africa, Janine Africa, Ramona Africa, uh, Delbert Africa, Eddie Africa, and Carlos Africa are all pictured in the imagery here. Man, that's amazing. So, yeah, that's something you want to definitely tune into at wall o two six seven at t e z underscore the writer. So those are the places you can find it live on May thirteenth. Yeah, and it's gonna like be said, dynamic. We, we talk with them on occasions, the survivors, uh, Ramona. Uh, we've both been guest speakers at uh, various events, and she's well aware of the abolitionist movement and in full support of it, as a matter of fact. As we mentioned earlier, she was one of the speakers at the Million for Prison, Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington, which was organized by two, uh, including two of our sponsors, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak and the I Am We Prison Advocate, Advocacy Network, actually by three, because Prismatic Dreams is involved too. Well, um, you know, since we're on this casual killing act, we're going to keep on moving and go into what's happening today. We told you what's happening in 1985. So what's happening in 2020? And uh, one of the things that we want to talk about is the Ahmaud Arbery story. Um, everybody is pretty much aware of it by now. You know, uh, these two white men, father and son, one a former officer uh, working with the DA's office. I guess he's retired. Uh, looked at me, and since they run around in their little pickup truck with shotguns, like they was out on a hunt. I mean, they were dressed in the most redneck fashion you can imagine a redneck would be dressed in. <laughs> if I was to say, you know, what two people do I not want to run across in the middle of a white neighborhood, it would be these two people with guns and the, boy, the, the, the um, baseball caps that are, you know, really bent forward and stupid and the big red beards and heavy shirts with a couple of shotguns in a pickup truck. The only thing missing was a Confederate flag. Um, and, you know, they, they murdered this man right there. And it was on video, and it took them almost three months uh, for them to finally press charges or to even arrest them. Uh, there's, uh, you know what, rather than just keep talking about it, let's, let's start by listening to a couple of clips. Uh, about the story itself, particularly this one uh, that comes out of NBC Nightly News. I chose this on purpose, uh, pardon my language, but it's filled with fuckery, and we are going to examine that said fuckery. Tonight, newly public video in the case of Ahmaud Arbery. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation confirms it is reviewing this surveillance video obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution showing a person walking up to a house, entering, then leaving a short time later. That person believed to be Arbery, according to a statement from his family's attorneys, who write, this video is consistent with the evidence already known to us, noting that the house was empty, under construction, and Arbery engaged in no illegal activity. The GBI confirms that video was reviewed before the McMichaels were arrested. 
Arbery's death sparked nationwide protests. The 25-year-old seen running, out for a jog, his family says, unarmed. In the truck, Gregory and Travis McMichael, armed and pursuing Arbery because they thought he was a burglary suspect. In a police report, the senior McMichael said his son Travis shot in self-defense, saying Arbery began to violently attack. Arbery's mother has not watched that video made public this week. What was your reaction when you heard that the McMichaels had been arrested? Actually, I was in a numb state because I, I, I had waited for two months, two, two months and two weeks. William Ryan recorded the video of the shooting. His attorney, Kevin Goff. And was he with the McMichaels? Was he, he was, was trying, he driving he was trying to get him? his picture. He was trying to get a picture of Mr. Arbery. Yeah. Why? Because there had been a number of crimes in the neighborhood and he didn't recognize him and a vehicle that he did recognize was, was following him. Goff says his client has fully cooperated and showed the video to local police when it happened back in February, but no arrests until the GBI got involved this week. Now, the state attorney general is looking into how the case was handled. Two prosecutors recused themselves over conflicts of interest. One writing, he believed the McMichaels' actions were perfectly legal. NBC was not able to locate an attorney for the McMichaels. Tonight on the streets of Brunswick, a deafening roar in honor of Arbery. Wish the world could have got a chance to know Ahmad, to really truly love Ahmad. Blaine Alexander, NBC News, Brunswick, Georgia. Hey, NBC News fans, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here. And there you have it. NBC Nightly News, talking about Ahmad. Um, I I'll start with letting you go ahead and say whatever you want to say. You said you already know where I'm going with it. You've seen it in print. Uh, so you start off however you want. You might want to unmute. Oh boy, you know, I'm sorry I've been having this coughing fit, as I've been telling you, you know, from uh, some smoke that's been coming into to my house. So that's right. why I keep muting so I don't cough during the broadcast. But here's the position I'm going to take. Let's say, for argument's sake, that he did trespass. The punishment for trespass in Georgia is a $500 fine. This is the maximum. $500 fine and a year in prison. Or a year in county jail, basically. Because it's a misdemeanor. That's the punishment for it. Not death. So anyone arguing, oh, he was doing this, he was doing that. What you're basically saying is you're okay with him being killed for doing it. That's the argument you're making. Whether you intend to do it or not, that's the argument that's being made. That if that's him in the video and he's trespassing, then he deserved to get what happened to him. Then we can throw out all the laws in this nation and we can go to the wild, wild west again. Because that's what we're basically saying. Law doesn't matter anymore. That's what I have to say on it, Max, because, you know, I'm tired of it. You know, I'm I'm really tired of it. You know, when we look at... Just how the 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 casual killing act even goes, you know. Uh, mind if I play this one minute clip right now, Max? Yes, let's let's let the world know again. We played it in the beginning what it was, but let's let another brother express it. You're talking about Rizzo, right? 
No, 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 no. I, I wanted to play uh, Joy DeGry Leary. Well, she's okay, Dr. Okay. Joy right. DeGry let's, now. Let's, let's, this is from Post Traumatic Slave. Uh, I, still, I still do want to comment on that particular clip that we just heard. Oh, so let let you 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 go on that first, and then we can we can move on. I didn't I didn't I apologize. Okay. Just yeah, the whole situation <laughs> just has me out of whack, man. Because it's like I'm angry at both sides. Right. Well, the reason I picked that particular clip is because let's point out something. First of all, this is MSNBC. This is mainstream media. This is what is a media media organization. Uh, Corp Control, that is well known as a liberal media organization, okay? I have been an executive producer of programming and shows for over 25 years. I put together all kinds of programming shows. I put together this program. So as you said, we know that every minute and every second that is covered is in our itineraries of what we're going to be talking about. And there's a purpose behind everything. Now, they only provided a two-minute and 20-second video. And it started out uh, with them poisoning the well by talking about this video of him walking up to an abandoned home and it, as if he was a robber, as if somehow walking up to check an abandoned home for whatever reasons, maybe you want to buy it, maybe you know the people working on construction, whatever the reason is, is somehow criminal and justifies this, his death. And then they immediately gave credibility to the killer's excuse, no allegedly thought that was applied. They said he was a burglar, and he was a burglar. They, that's what they thought, end of conversation. They also made sure they clearly positioned the uh, narrative of he violently attacked us, a.k.a. I feared for my life. And since this is right. a former cop, of course he's going to do something like that because he knows the piano keys to play to start the song singing again. And then from mainstream media, this is what's coming out. They only did this uh, psychological proper freaking gander that they are putting in your head. And then they allowed William Bryan's attorney, the videographer, to push this uh, idea that there was a rash of crimes in the area, a claim that, according to police records, is blatantly untrue, a lie, an outright lie. There was no rash right. of any crimes happening in that area. But they didn't say that. They just let him go ahead and push this narrative to further support what they were trying to put across. And then finally, they showed the letters from the DA's office talking about two uh, prosecutors were recusing themselves and how they thought that the murder that they had been witnessed on video was perfectly legal. Um, of course it is, under the Casual Killing Act of 2020 uh, and before that. So in a two-minute, 20-second video, 99% of it was pro-genocide, anti-black rhetoric, in an effort to control the negatives, switch blame, and support the murderer's claims without question. The only two parts of it uh, where the people had to say something that was positive was the mother, of course, who they were exploiting for credibility for their program, and then the person at the end talking about uh, the brother was somebody you should love. So sandwiched in those two things was nothing but propaganda demonizing the man who had been murdered and supporting the most redneckinest redneckers you could possibly find out in a freaking pickup truck with shotguns looking for somebody to shoot during a pandemic. That's what I got to say. You see? Yeah, you, you hit it, Max. 
I mean, that's it right there. You 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 nailed it right there. That's how they're poisoning in the well. And that's why I said before people start jumping on that, let's look at what law is. Let's look at the law. We have the Casual Killing Act. We know what it was brought in for. And that's why when we get to the, the clip by Dr. Joy, she breaks down in just that one little minute the reasoning behind what, what brought it about. Okay, let's go for it, man. Before we get into um, the Casual Killing Act, the Casual Killing Act was written uh, because of the number of people who were killed by while being corrected. Okay. And if any slave resists his master, owner, or other person by his or her order, correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, it shall not be counted felony, but the master, owner, and every other person so giving correction shall be acquitted of all punishment and accusation for the same as if such accident had never happened. So that means that if you happen to be correcting someone and you beat them to death, you know how hard it is to beat someone to death? I mean, I thought about that. I said it happened so frequently that they created a law so that you wouldn't feel any what? No guilt because you were simply correcting them. It wasn't your fault. So I went back to look at who was beating folks to death. I wanted to know. And it was white women. White women were beating black children to death. That's where it started. It started right there where it wasn't so much so that they were putting into law saying it was okay to do it. It was put in there to make them feel less guilty about doing it, if they had any guilt at all. So then we look at how it plays out today. You know, where they talk about, oh, it was a mistake, it was a mistake. Well, that's what they do nowadays. They use that same language. You know, that if the police accidentally kill you, it was a correction and deemed an unpunishable offense by most law and order statutes. You know, and you know, and it's like when you when you have a situation where an officer pulls out his weapon and he shoots a fleeing quote unquote suspect, he's already made a decision on the other person's Fourth Amendment right to due process. What he's basically saying is, you know, I find you guilty and I'm sentencing you to whatever happens once I shoot you. Then look at how their training goes. What do they say when they shoot somebody? They don't say, I shot him to kill him or anything. They have that trained language they use where they say, you know, we were neutralizing a threat and I feared for my life. All the little words that they have, these little play words that they throw out there and people eat them up because the courts have left the determination of what's a reason, what a person reasonably fears for their life is it's it's left to open interpretation. So therefore they they're able to exploit it. Max? You know, I've been in media for a very long time. I've been on all kinds of stations and channels. One of some of the stations that don't go on on purpose is mainstream media. I just don't want to. I mean, the I've seen them do things like edit out a six year old black child's conversation about wanting to be a cop to only include the part where he says, I want a gun. Not the part that says, like the police have, so I can protect my neighborhood. They just said, they showed a little black kid saying he wanted a gun and implying that this little child was soon to be a murderer. This was mainstream media that did that. And I just played for everybody else to hear 
how they use psychological programming to already steer you in the direction of supporting these genocidal maniacs. Uh, and, you know, there's a group right now called Justice for Gregory and Travis McMichael that has mm-hmm. 952 members. And on that uh, group it says, these two God-fearing men were only trying to protect their neighborhood. The area had a string of break-ins, and this man fit the description and did not comply with simple demand. Our hearts go out to the Michael family in their time of need. Amen. Again, slavery's Christianity is not the Christianity of the slaves. You guys are worshiping a whole different God. I don't even know what the hell you got with a God up in there at all. Amen for what? You talking to Satan? Because that's your God you're worshiping. For real. Right. Uh, and, what is up with this comply or die stuff? The casual killing act is all about the comply or die. You do what I say or right. you die. Who the hell right. are you, man? You're a private citizen. <sighs> comply or die. And it's already got yeah. 952 members. And, and and thankfully, you know, that there's a such thing as black Facebook because many people infiltrated the group just as they did in the uh, – Amber Geiger case. I should say both of them, Gene, because we want to we want to remember both of them, not his killer, but infiltrated the group and basically shut it down. You know, they basically mm-hmm. shut the group down because people went in there and they just weren't going to allow allow that rhetoric to go on inside of that group. So definitely a big we shout are, out to Black Facebook. We keep telling people here. I mean, let's just do the math. It's, it's, Simple to add up. The program's name is Abolition Today. Okay? Right. Abolition as in slavery abolition. We are constantly right. telling you that this is not a mistake. It's not an error in judgment. Problems that we've accrued over time. This is a specific a system specifically set up to enslave people, to use human beings as chattel property, which they do. So when we tell you that slavery's still here, all the trappings that go with slavery, are here too. That includes the casual right. killing act of 1661 or 1669, whatever the hell it is. We're still practicing those very same policies and practices. The police out here think like slave catchers. They have quotas that they have to fill. They're out there abusing people to express their power and murdering and killing us and hunting us in the streets for for-profit industries. Uh, the a type of atrocity that you would expect to see during antebellum periods of slavery can be very much found inside prison walls, including women's prisons. Where women are subject to rape and molestation, and uh, examples would be Tutwiler in Alabama, Alabama, where the women in some cases had to give strip shows to the guards in order to get feminine hygiene projects or blowjobs, right. anything like that. And, you know, it's such a twisted system that the United States of America leads the world in rape cases, and not rape for women. Men are raped more than women in the United States specifically because of the prison industry. It's it's demonic, man. And this casual killing act is part of the policies programs and ideals that follow slave catchers. We are going to have to take this to the next level. I think it's time for us to move to, uh, like I said, take it to the next level. So let's start uh, our conversation now 
of our prisons and COVID. Because, you know, we've been talking about it uh, for the past few weeks because it's an emergency situation. So over the past few weeks and months, it's been found that black people in particular seem more susceptible to catching and dying from the COVID virus than anybody else. In some places, they make up as much as five, uh, 50% of the population of COVID uh, victims, like in Chicago. In other places, they are seven times more likely to catch this disease. But the place where they're most likely to get, really get it is inside the prisons. So what I want to start with is uh, a video clip where uh, – the news talks about the racial aspects of the COVID virus. So let's start there, and then I'm going to follow up with another one before we start our discussion. The clash between police and the public on the Lower East Side became a flashpoint in the new era of social distancing enforcement. The way they tossed my son in the street, right. broke ribs, stood on his head like as though he was nothing. It just it sickens me. It sickens this whole community. So much so that other videos of similar interactions went viral and have started new conversations in the era of coronavirus. New arrest data stemming from social distancing enforcement in Brooklyn shows 39 out of 40 are black or brown people. Citywide, they account for 92% of all those arrested, according to the public advocate's office. Thursday night, dozens of protesters and community activists formed a caravan that drove past police precincts in Brooklyn, where most of the arrests have originated. These officers, these thugs, because that's what they were, yeah. and that's what they are. Yeah. They, are they acted like thugs. While admitting that the arrest videos are tough to watch, the commander of Brooklyn North Police insists many times there's more to the story. There were 9-11 calls for fights. Uh, you know, disorderly crowds that the officers had to respond to. And what you saw was the last 10 seconds of a video where officers had to take action, and, and, and it looks terrible. The mayor shot back against any comparison to stop and frisk. This is the farthest thing from that. This is addressing a pandemic. They're addressing the fact that lives are in danger all the time. Later Thursday night, he went further, tweeting, the disparity in the numbers do not reflect our values. Since the beginning of the pandemic, 120 people have been arrested citywide. 500 have been summoned for social, social distancing offenses. The public advocate uh, now releasing a statement saying that the city stalled on releasing this data. And now we know why. That's the latest live here in downtown Brooklyn. I'm Anthony DiLorenzo, PIX11 News. All right, Anthony, thank you. Okay, that's the first clip that I want to play. It talks about the racial disparities in arrest particularly in New York. I'm going to follow up on that along with you, Seth, but I want you to hear uh, the next part, which is the direct response in regards to how many people are being infected in black communities uh, from Dr. Fauci as well as uh, President Trump on the response and what they can do about uh, the situation with black people being more affected. There you go. We have a, a particularly difficult problem of an exacerbation of a health disparity. We've known literally forever that diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma are disproportionately afflicting the minority populations, particularly the African Americans. 
unfortunately, when you look at the predisposing conditions that lead to a bad outcome with coronavirus, the things that get people into ICUs that require intubation and often lead to death, they are just those very comorbidities that are unfortunately disproportionately prevalent in the African-American population. So we're very concerned about that. It's very sad. It's nothing we can do about it right now except to try and give them the best possible care to avoid those complications. There you have it. Those are two different circumstances. The first video was talking about uh, people in the streets and social distancing and how it's only black people that are being arrested uh, under those circumstances. I don't believe it was that many people that were arrested, if any, uh, when the white supremacists basically stormed the freaking capital. And then the second one uh, was the president's spokesperson on this issue talking about how there's nothing you can do about black people dying. It's just not our problem right now. You, We sick, boss. We got diabetes. We got high blood pressure. We got all kinds of problems, and that's the reason why we're dying. So there's nothing they can do about it. So in one case, they got to do something about it because we're out in the streets. In the other case, if we're in the hospital, there's nothing we can do about it. Yusuf? You know, and, and hearing Mayor de Blasio say, you know, uh, that these numbers don't reflect our values. And I'm saying to myself, what the hell do they reflect then? Because they're there. You know, you go if you go to Central Park, you see all kinds of, you know, people definitely not social distancing in, in Central Park. But, of course, you know, the police aren't going there. They're going to go to bed. They're going to can't even say Bed-Stuy anymore because that's been heavily gentrified. But they're, they're not going to go to East New York. They're not going to go to – I mean, they're going to East New York and going to Brownsville and East Flatbush and places like that and, you know, different parts of Harlem, South Bronx. That's where they're going now. You know, that they, they're not going to the areas it's, – it's not proportionate across the city. You know, we know the areas where it's predominantly black and Latino in the community, you know, uh, and – we know what's happening. I mean, the numbers don't lie. So if you say it doesn't reflect your values, then what does it reflect? Because it's definitely happening. We can't say it's not happening. The data supports it 100%. 95% of the youth that are in Rikers Island right now are black and brown youth. 95%. That's your values right, right there. What do you mean? Don't reflect your values. Well, you got 95% right. white people in there? No, you don't. It's what you've been doing right now in Rikers Island. And I might want to. I want to add also. Rikers Island is a place where it costs three hundred and forty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate someone for one year, even those who have not yet been convicted of any crimes, like a Khalif Browder. Three hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. That is literally a bounty on people's heads. With the slave catchers out there making that three hundred and forty thousand a pop, and those same prisoners. Are now five days or six days a week, where it used to be one, digging graves on Heart Islands where they are burying mass bodies, just stacks and stacks right. of people unclaimed on Heart Island right now with the prisoners doing the, the burying. You're talking about psychological damage. Oh my God, if you were charged for a crime that you didn't commit and now you're digging freaking graves in a mass grave during a pandemic, you are never going to be the same. Mm. Never, never the same. Never going to be the same. And then you know the other 
with Fauci and Trump talking about there's nothing we can do, and basically victim blaming, saying, you know, if you didn't stop eating so many damn pork chops and pig feet, you might be all right. That's what I got oh from that. My God. Yeah, that's what I got so, from it. Like basically yeah, blaming yeah. us. Obesity. You've got a lot of fat black children. That's your problem. It's a, you know, when you went, when you let these people control the narrative, part of their narrative is the Casual Killing Act of 1669, where they don't give a damn if you die. They will literally put your life at risk as they are doing now. And it's not community leaders that are doing it. It's freaking Alex. Alex, the cabal of billionaires and corporate owners who literally write your laws and own your legislators. They are pushing us to go back and start the economy up. And when your president, Trump, says something like we all must sacrifice, he certainly ain't talking about nobody named Trump. And nobody named right. Trump going to be working at Walmart. And nobody named Trump going to be delivering food to the homeless. Ain't nobody named Trump going to be out here providing you with a haircut or nails or anything like that. You can rest assured they are going to be safe and secure. So the sacrifice is yours. They're going to spend your life to put everybody back in the streets now. And the, the COVID virus has not reduced. The, the deaths have not reduced. As a matter of fact, in some states that have reopened, the death rate has increased, and they're still going at it. So it's not their families they're sacrificing. It's yours. There was a video I saw where a young woman uh, died of COVID, black woman, and her mother said that her last paycheck was for $20 and some change, like $20.23. And that's what she gave her life for, working as a, in a supermarket, $20.23. You died a horrible death for $20.23. Don't give your life away for $20.23. And wow. those in prison have no choice. They don't got no choice. As we've explained on this program, when they twerk, you work. Like Brother Tony Crane pointed out to us, shout out to Tony Crane, who went down to New York to pick up supplies that were being given out by the state, city of New York, where it was hand sanitizer and things like that. And on the hand sanitizer, it says right there, made by Corecraft Correctional Corporation. Well, the prisoners now are making your hand sanitizer, but they can't get any. Yusuf? You said it earlier, Max, and it, it, it just sums it all up. You know, that they're consciously consciously deciding to let certain groups die as a sacrifice to the God called capitalism. You know, so when I hear going back to Mayor de Blasio, it's not, it doesn't reflect our values. No, not your values, but your value. The one thing that they value is that, that almighty dollar. That's all they care about by any means necessary, right? Whatever well, by any means necessary is make that money by any means necessary. Ask for forgiveness later, and it's not even really asking for forgiveness. It's always, oh, we didn't mean to do any harm. We didn't mean to do this. It wasn't our intention to do that. That's always the excuse. Going back to the Casual Killing Act, Max, that's what it's all about. Oh, it wasn't intentional. It happened by accident. This is a, a law that was on the books uh, for all the way up to the 1800s, <laughs> Casual Killing Act. And with slavery, the Casual Killing Act is back and is being used on a regular basis. 
And for those that still don't get it, I want to play one more quick quick clip. It's another one minute long, and it's from Riza Islam explaining the Casual Killing Act. Let's keep pounding it in. Now, Casual Killing Act 1669. You were allowed to murder a slave if you were the slave master or an overseer, if your slave did not do what you wanted them to do. So as a result of correcting them, you could murder them. This was all in law. You would not be looked at as a felon. You would not receive a felony. You would not receive any of the punishment that a person would receive normally. Okay, because all you have to say is, the nigger wouldn't do what I told him to do. So I want us to understand that nothing has changed. It has evolved in its appearance. We are being murdered today faster than we were murdered in the time of Jim Crow. We are being murdered faster today than we were murdered in the time during Willie Lynch. Let me know and should let all of us know that the Casual Killing Act is still in place. Per activity, not per literary written rule, but per activity. The policy is still active. The police officers who implement it are still active. The Klan still runs multiple police departments. The Resume Islam, Casual Killing Act of 1669. Get it? That's what we're dealing with right now, where people don't care and they don't get prosecuted for the genocide that they're participating in. I even saw videos where Ohio is asking people to rat out their neighbors who won't go to work because they're afraid of COVID. I saw another video that is being put out by Corporate America that tells employees what to do if your employees refuse to show up for work. It tells you just send them an email so you can document it saying show up for work this day at this time. And if they don't show up, fire them and get somebody else to replace them, and they'll lose their unemployment benefits. And make sure you tell them right. if you don't show up, you're going to lose all your benefits, your health insurance. And you'll just get somebody else willing to go out into a pandemic and kill themselves with a mama or somebody else uh, for another price. I mean, this is what we're dealing with right now. And these are marching orders coming from corporate uh, lobbyists that represent not just American corporations, but international corporations. So let's go ahead and get into it. Did you want to add anything to that, Reza Islam, or the, the last clip before we go to the next part? No, I'm good. You can go on. All right. So we're going to keep it moving. This is, did Tennessee ignore warning signs about COVID-19 Spread in prison. They know what's happening. It's on purpose. They are consciously deciding to let you die. And now you're going to hear some of that double talk for yourself. And now News Channel 5 Investigates has discovered that Governor Bill Lee's team failed to heed key warning signs about what might be happening inside those prisons. Our chief investigative reporter, Phil Williams, has been analyzing the timeline, trying to figure out who knew what and when. Phil. Until last week, Governor Lee and his team had insisted that inmates could not be tested unless they showed symptoms. In other words, they had to get sick first. At the same time, they were warning the public that people without symptoms could still be infected and potentially spreading the virus. All of us physicians sit around and say, how is this happening? Last week, Governor Bill Lee's Health Commissioner Lisa Piercy expressed shock after testing at the Trousdale-Turner Correctional Facility revealed a previously undetected outbreak of more than 1,200 COVID-19 cases, what was then the third largest in the country. We don't know why, um, but we do know that the overwhelming majority of them are well. They're just testing positive. So 
from a scientific standpoint, it's a real head-scratcher why uh, they have such a high asymptomatic rate. But go back to late March. One of the most concerning trends we've seen is an increase in our elderly population, and specifically that at the Gallatin Center for Rehab and Healing. After an outbreak forced an emergency evacuation of the Gallatin Nursing Home, Piercy issued guidance to all long-term care facilities, warning that, quote, recent experience suggests that a substantial proportion of residents could have COVID-19 detected without reporting symptoms or before symptoms develop. This was her two days later. There does appear to be a growing concern of pre-symptomatic spread, which means you can uh, pass along the infection before you actually have symptoms. And unfortunately, I think the call for testing should have happened long ago. Hedy Weinberg heads the ACLU of Tennessee. When you are locked up because the state has put you someplace and have locked you up, the state has a responsibility to provide the testing. The state has a responsibility to ensure that you have access to the health care you need. In fact, there have been concerns going back to January about the virus rapidly spreading due to the fact that not everyone showed symptoms. On April 16th, News Channel 5 investigates asked Piercy why inmates had to get sick before they could get tests. You and the governor have both said people do not have to be symptomatic to get tests but you're saying you're only testing inmates who are symptomatic. I'd actually uh, push back a little bit on, I don't think we've ever said that people that are asymptomatic or without symptoms should be tested. But go back just one day. Sometimes we know that people just don't feel right, or they might be what we call an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carrier. Then, as concerns mounted about a massive outbreak at a state prison in Bledsoe County involving hundreds of confirmed cases, the commissioner seemed to acknowledge that cases had been overlooked. We're learning that our prison population has a higher asymptomatic rate uh, than we thought. Still, it would be almost two weeks before the Lee administration ordered mass testing at all state prisons. People are sentenced to prison, and that is part of our criminal justice system, but at the same time, it is not a death sentence and should not be a death sentence. And unfortunately, we're starting to see that. So we went back to the health commissioner. Do you accept any responsibility for the fact that this situation got so out of control inside the prison system? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure anybody any, did anything wrong there. Um, in fact, I think we are on the forefront of testing proactively. Now, the ACLU had also urged the governor to, to make it possible for prisons to practice social distancing by releasing inmates who had less than a year to serve or those just in prison on technical parole violations. We discovered that inmate who died, convicted rapist Ronnie Johnson, was sent to prison, back to prison in 2018 after he was found to be in possession of alcohol. Rory. That was, did Tennessee ignore warning signs about COVID-19 spreading prisons? Yes, you know, Max, all I hear is uh, the casual killing act. That's all I heard mm -hmm. the entire tape. You know, we didn't mean to do it. We meant well. We didn't mean to do anything. And then just to throw the icing on the cake at the end, Let's mention, after we talk about all these prisoners, let's throw the word rape in there to make it seem that it's like anyone that was building up sympathy for anything that's going on there, 
okay, we're talking about rapists, because you know how every time anything is talked about and bring any type of relief to prisoners, it's the first thing they mention are, well, what about the rapists and the murders? All the They're going to be letting murderers and rapists out. They always go there first to take away any level of sympathy or humanization of the people. So you definitely hear them, the casual killing act all over that. After our music break, we're going to go into that data you were just referencing and give people the breakdown in numbers. You know, we like to use facts around here. <laughs> so we're going to give you the breakdowns of the numbers. When I tell you that slavery has never ended and it needs to be abolished, that's not a matter of opinion. Uh, it's provable. And, hell, you could just use the past nine episodes of this program to get much of that proof in it alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, one of the things that stood out for me is the double talk. It was two different things going on because you were literally listening to a professional liar whose lies are killing people as we speak. Right. Uh, she knew what was going on and would say one thing to one group and another thing to another group uh, when nothing had changed and she knew what the case was. And that right. reminds me of the quote by Brother James Baldwin. I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. You were doing it right hey. there, and our, lying in our faces about what you know and don't know and what affects who and who doesn't affect another one because you don't care whether or not these people behind bars die. It's really just that simple. You don't care. And you don't want to lose the income that they provide, whether it be through warehousing their bodies for $340,000 a year or the free labor that comes with it, like making core craft product of produced uh hand sanitizer that you're distributing throughout the entire state. Right. Hmm. All right. It only gets worse. Wait, it gets worse. Anybody with the man sticking finger said, wait, it gets worse. And it does. You know, exactly. Much like the Tuskegee experiment, there's an human experiment that's been happening out in Marion Prison in Ohio. And uh, I would like to tell the people about what is happening there, or have you tell them, Yusuf, in a state where at the prison, the National Guard has been called out while this human experiment in COVID goes on. So, Yusuf, the mic is yours. Start, Max. You know, and this is just what they're reporting that I'm that I'm giving out, where as much as 90% of the inmate population at Marion Prison has COVID-19. They have a lost track of the number of inmates there. So according to state records, 1,353 inmates and 175 staff members at Marion have tested positive. 12 inmates and one staff member have died. The National Guard got called in. Some are saying it's, oh, just to help out with security because they're understaffed. And then the other side is saying, we don't know why they're there. It's just inexplicable as to why they're there. But those incarcerated there who have been able to get their voices out have just been putting out information that it's really bad in there. So much so that a food strike began 
on May 8th. So today, what is that? Friday, they began their food strike because they weren't from getting three meals a day, which was just really a bagged breakfast, a hot lunch, and a bagged dinner. Now they say the meals have dwindled down to uh, lunch, what they was just called brunch, and a bagged dinner. And they said the bagged dinner was like a bologna sandwich. And the idea of a, a hot meal was cereal, gravy, and two biscuits. That's what they were getting fed. And people are just getting so sick. I heard one one parent mention that they're having to make their own mask by taking their T-shirts and putting toilet paper inside of it to cover their faces with, because they're not being given any type of supplies. And... I'm sorry, Max. I'm going through different articles right now. There's a clip from Democracy Now! that I'll have posted. And around the article about or or the portion of their uh, video about Marion begins around the 40-minute and 42-second mark of the video to where you can hear from people from the inside and from their families. You can also read up on the article of the uh, food strike that's going on there and see food strikes, for those who don't know, food strikes are very effective in the prison systems because the last thing they need is their cash cow dying on them. This is why the administrations always react once the population stops eating. They can give you the worst food possible. They just want you eating. But once they know you're not eating, now you become a a, a big threat, and now they start reacting because they need that cow alive. They don't need that cow dead. But at the same time, they're letting them just sit there getting sick, getting sick. When we first heard about it, it was at about 40%. And each week, It's increased by 10% at least. And again, they're just reporting 80 to 90%. It's probably much higher and it's definitely far worse when you have a food strike going on. They're saying, because it's hard organizing a food strike in prison. It's very hard. Because you always have those that are just going to eat regardless. But when you have the prison population not eating, that tells you how bad the situation is there. Max? Situation is definitely bad. It's critical right now. Uh, We don't use words like genocide and slavery lightly. It's the reason for existence of programs like this one and this one in particular. Um, The people that we are associated with and working with are all very familiar with genocide because they're living it. We all have. Uh, to a very large degree, and uh, I just wish. How did uh, how did the brother say it? Brother Walker, the abolitionist David Walker's appeal: If white people would only listen. <laughs> Man, <laughs> you know, we tell you certain things are a problem, and you think it's not a problem, huh? Because it doesn't affect you, right? Uh, we and, out, and if I could just add one more. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Max. Go ahead, brother. Go ahead. Feel free. Oh, I was just going to add one more thing for our listeners, you know. 
we would really like to get in contact with uh, anyone that's inside of Marion. If you have a family member or a friend, you, you know someone that's there, we'd love to get and have them get in contact with us so we can get basically, you know, on the ground information because the only information we get is from the media and they're not motivated to really tell us what's really going on there. I'm extremely concerned as to why the National Guard is there. I think that we all should be. Right. We all should be. Because we know what happens when that type of scenario plays out, like it did in uh, St. Louis when the National Guard was in St. Louis. But while they were there, they were also setting up uh, chemical, uh, some kind of cloud that they was pumping out. It was on rooftops. It was on the sides of buildings. Sometimes it was under cars. I forget what type of chemical they were using, but it was a test on the citizens of St. Louis that the military was uh, doing, which was literally poisoning the citizens. And it was happening in primarily all black communities where the majority of the inhabitants were children. Amazing. Anyway, it's a good time to take a music break. What do you think, Yusuf? No time better than the present. No doubt, man. You know, like I said, we pride ourselves on presenting you some really wonderful artists and artistry in the abolitionist music, and today, no less than any other, here is Napoleon the Legend, Mass Incarceration. In the belly of the beast, they treat us like livestock, selling us a dream. It's to demonize the skin color, kids suffer from a broken family structure. And when they cash in their tasers, laughing in our face while they distracted and insane, it's to bend facts and disgraces from the past to present day, it's mass incarceration. Uh, lift the veil up, the system has failed us. Two million of us sitting in jail, what they selling us is lies. Where it's heaven when you live in the hell, you can't see it, but you feel it like it's written. And braille. They introduced the indentured servants as the workers now slaves. Basically, the same concepts were worded. Poor white folks, angry, broken, disenfranchised, invented racism to justify the apartheid as politics. Due to the pressure, Lincoln abolished it. After the Civil War, the economy dipped. Four million black slaves were freed. Industry suffered. Eventually, they locked them up and made them work for nothing. Reconstruction, vagrancy laws made public. Anything you do will put you in front of these judges. Whites started working with blacks. Party was popular. Then they created segregation to put a stop to this intro to Jim Crow laws with a pen stroke. The syndrome expanding black and brown people been broke. Similar to poor white folks, but they divided us. Ku Klux Klan is ISIS terrorizing us. After World War II, things were pretty critical. Criticizing Nazis, looking hypocritical. Civil Rights Act was signed. Okay, fine now. Beat the second verse for what was next in line. Cause... In the belly of the beast, they treat us like livestock, selling us a dream. It's to demonize the skin color, kids suffer from a broken family structure. And when they cash in their tasers, laughing in our face while they distracted and insane. It's to bend facts and disgraces from the past to present day. It's mass incarceration. Black and brown represent the outcast. Racial caste is foul, like tackling, grabbing a face mask. Prison is privatized and the profits keep rising. Convicts are released without any means. To survive post-racist America with laws is colorblind You can never get the truth by discovering a lie Who advocates for the inmate Regarded as a criminal Families torn with penitentiaries are the ritual The poor get stuck in courtrooms It's the war against drugs Another way to wage 
war against us. In other words, a hood's over-policed and underserved. Gentrification, bringing hunger wars up in the burbs. Jim Crow's upgraded when they sent us upstate. I walk the street with a chip in an indigenous face. Complexity of my essence, complicit with my complexion. Culturally conflicted in the system I was bred in. Shell shock, free us from the cell block. Sell off all your jail stock. Right to your senator, flood a mailbox. Stereotypes have to change too. What's the movement? No more cooning to entertain you. Cards on the table for change. You've driven. True in what we live in and birthing a new system with the taboos lifted. The reality is blatant. Kicking the door down with the audacity to change it. In the belly of the beast, they treat us like livestock, selling us a dream. It's to demonize the skin color. Kids suffer from a broken family structure. And when they capture and they tase us, laughing in our face while they distract and entertain us. It's to bend facts and disgraces from the past to present day. It's mass incarceration. It is a tragedy that we're now counting down the days of the first African-American accent on African president in the history of the United States. And when he leaves, you will still have the greatest incarcerator on earth at work and growing and continuing to divest and destroy and diminish the lives of millions of people. The fact that you can have a black presidency and not put a dent in that Hellhole is startling, is tragedy, you know, on a grand stage. That was Napoleon the Legend, Mass Incarceration. What you think, Yusuf? Hey, man, you killed it with that one. You killed it with that one. Man. Yo, that was hard. Yeah, man. <laughs> he lived it's, it's, yeah, man. So right. much great indie talent out there, man. So much great mm-hmm. talent out there. He reminds me of Jerry and, with damages. Yeah, and, and you hear the line, you know. We said uh, mass incarceration, and they, what, what did he say? Oh, man. Got it's worth a rewind, brother. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that rewind. Something we said, something like he treat us like we're property. You know, like mm-hmm. they know. The brother right. knows, and you know, I just did a little research on him, and they say he works regularly with youth, running hip hop workshops in Brooklyn's toughest schools and Rikers Island's juvenile programs. See? You know, so the brothers on the ground doing it is just not something he's saying on his songs, that he's actually living that. Right. Right. There's a lot of them out there. They just don't get the play that they're supposed to get. They don't get the love or respect they're supposed to get. Mainstream media has a narrative that is crafting, and this story is not part of it. As a matter of fact, the counter to this story will be part of it before these stories be part of it. <laughs> you right. know? They will stop it before it ever gets there. They don't Man, want to talk about things about, like this. Yeah, if he was talking about buying, you know, uh, buying up the bar and, you know, and disrespecting women and, you know, popping a cap in, in you know, a brother's head, you know, He'd be on heavy rotation on some of the top stations and all the power channels, you know, all, you know, you know, all the stations, you know, all the stations, yeah. they'd be getting heavy rotation, clear channel, all of them. They'd be giving them heavy rotation. They sure do. Well, here we give you some shine. 
Here, we love what you're doing. Here, we want you to do more like that. Here, you can send your checks to abolitionistcenter at gmail.com and let us uh, get an opportunity to listen and possibly share them here on our program. Word. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, Yeah, that was a great, great uh, song. And I particularly like the end where it was pointed out by Mumia how we had 44 come through here and not even put a dent in this system before leaving it. So here you go. Our next segment is uh, we're going to get into some numbers. We're running a little behind time, so we're going to try to keep it as brief as possible. But we really want to give you the facts, as we said. So we're going to use data that comes from mass incarceration, the whole pie, 2020, and Mm -hmm. uh, data on racial makeup in the prisons to show you how many people really, again, can be safely released and what percentage of them are non-whites. And we want to uh, we're going to highlight some circumstances we've already seen with our own eyes about who is being released and why. And we also want to talk about a thing called pattern. And I don't mean that as the word in the English language. I mean it as the name of an algorithm program risk assessment tool that they are using right now to determine who can be released during this pandemic and who can't. And in that algorithm called pattern, it shows that only 7% of black men in federal prisons would be considered low risk enough to get out using that, compared with 30% of white men. And as I said before, we've seen who would be getting released. Uh, look at the people who were prosecuted during the impeachment trials. Uh, many of them are now free, including the two Russians that were stopped at the airport. So uh, a lot of them are getting their freedom. But the brother that you picked up for a bag of weed, he got to stay in. The man's 75 right. years old, who's been in for 45 years for, you know, the, the most ridiculous thing. He's got to stay in. Um, so I want to use this data and point it out. So you said, have you got that data in front of you? And maybe you can enlighten us on some of the things that stand out for you and maybe put it in perspective just how many people can be freed right now and should be freed. You know, I'm, I'm I'm actually doing the math right now, and I'm looking at just talking state prisons now. According to this chart, it says there are one million two hundred ninety-one thousand in in uh, state prisons right now, and if we just take away, they have one hundred eighty-three thousand for murder. So if we take them away. We take the 17,000 for manslaughter away, the 165,000 for rape and sexual assault, and let's even throw in the 169,000 for robbery. So that's going to leave... Almost there, almost there. Wait, let me do this over. So 1.2 in state prison. We're taking away the 183,000 in for murder, 17,000 in for manslaughter, 165,000 in for rape or assault, and 169,000 in for robbery. 
these are the, or when we take the other way, they say other violent crimes. So let's take them away as well. That would leave 715,000 people that could be released right now. 715,000. We haven't broken 10,000 yet. I think one state had as many as 4,000. And uh, but we haven't total across the country broke ten thousand yet. And, and you know what kind of crimes are these people in there? Four. Uh, one would be it's, it's a simple drug petty, possession. petty stuff. Yeah, driving simple under the influence. Well, well, let's let's mm-hmm. look at the map. Twenty five thousand in there for driving under the influence. Wow. One hundred and forty five. Well, they have forty five thousand for drug possession. One hundred and forty five thousand for other drugs. 26,000 for fraud, 122,000 for burglary, 44,000 for theft, 10,000 for car theft, and then other property, 25,000. The smallest amount in this entire chart for state prisons alone is other, and it comes after things like public order, which is 74,000. Other is 8,000. We haven't released that many people yet. <laughs> and that's right. Sitting on sidewalks, running around nude, streaking, uh, abusing a turtle, caught having sex with a horse. Other. Right. And, <laughs> and, and that's not counting the 631,000 in county jails, many of whom have never been convicted. Out of that 631,000, 161,000 have been convicted. And when they're talking about convicted being in a in a county jail, you're talking about misdemeanors. You're not even talking about felonies. You know, you're talking about guys again. You know, had simple possession or failure to pay a fine or failure to inability to pay a fine. You know, it, it, the right. numbers are just astonishing. Four hundred and seventy thousand people are in county jails right now that can be released because they haven't been convicted. And the only reason they're sitting there is because they can't pay bail. So basically we're talking about a million people plus, right? A million people okay. right now can be released. Okay. Now, based on racial statistics of prisons and jails nationwide, thirty eight percent of those people of that million, which would be 400,000 are black men and, and a small percentage are black women. So you're talking yes. about 400,000 black men who have a potential death sentence aimed at them. When you have 144 million men in your community, maybe 400,000 deaths might seem like a sacrifice worth making. But we don't have 144 million black men in this country. They only make black people, period, are about 46 million or 47 million of the entire U.S. population of 340 million people. Estimate about half of those black men. So you're talking about now uh, 23 million. And only about uh, a half of that are adult black men. So you're talking about uh, 13 million or, or t- 11 million, 11 and a half right. million. So out of 11 and a half million of us, 400,000 of them are subject to a death sentence in, for COVID in freaking jails and prisons. So many cases where impact. many 
and, and we're talking many many of these cases carry five years or less. Right. Because we took away all the violent crimes where they're going to be getting 20-plus years. Yes. It's a terrible and then we didn't count, you know, the juvenile detention centers and the immigration and, you know, the territorial prisons. We didn't count any of those. So that takes the numbers even higher as to who can be released. You're talking about, you know, one population is in uh, many cases seven to times more likely to contract something and die from it. And you're talking about 400,000 of them all in one location. That is the casual killing act in play right there because nobody is expected to be prosecuted for this. How could they possibly be expected to be prosecuted for allowing people to die in such a way? They are prisoners after all. They are merely uh, numbers that come and go in our system. That's how they're looking at it. It's throwing our lives right. out the window. You know, there's another article that Jeanette, I believe, found from uh, worthrises.org. We won't be able to get into it tonight, but I'm going to look over it through the week, and maybe you should too, Yusuf. It breaks down uh-huh. all the players. Like we did last week. I wish we had this uh-huh. last week. It would have been a bad check. But it breaks down all the players involved with the prison industry, the corporate players, uh, their names, their salaries, their monies, whether or not they are completely dependent upon prison income or how much of their wealth comes from prison income. Uh, They break it down into community corrections uh, with notable players, and they uh, have construction and maintenance, data and information systems, uh, the whole nine yards really is broken down here, uh, and it looks like something we might want to really uh, delve into to find out the players. Now, I know that there are a couple of errors within this because uh, there's not a whole lot of abolitionists out there, and I suspect they aren't one of them. But they did start out by saying every year the U.S. spends more than $80 billion incarcerating 2.3 million people in federal and state prisons. We've shown already that that is not true. It is far more than $80 billion. The state of California is like $14 billion by itself. Where do you have that, Yusuf? So did you want to put more into this? Because uh, if not, I was going to just say a few more things about this uh, pattern, and then uh, we can go into some of the news articles that we weren't able to make. No, go on. Go on. I mean – you know, I like to hear you talk anyway, brother. <laughs> it leads me back to what we I can, started. I can, sit here and be qu- I can sit here and be quiet the whole show, man. But <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. put that burden on you, man. Well, it, it takes two, man. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the algorithm called pattern, uh, I suggest you to look deeper into that. And it also leads me back to what we said in our original pro- uh, broadcast back in March, March 15th. Uh, there are three films that we highly suggest that you watch in this particular order. Slavery, by another name, PBS is free, 13th, available on Netflix, and then finally Do Not Resist, which is available, I believe, on Hulu and uh, I don't think it's Netflix, but it's all the other major places. In Do Not Resist, right. they had the people who put together these predictive programmings, and they explained to you in detail where they're going with this. You really should know. Uh, we have artificial intelligences now programmed by people who have racial biases that are putting out racial biases 
in their assessments. And that's how you end up with only 7% of black men in federal prisons who are considered low risk enough to get out using this algorithm called pattern. That's all I had to cover on it. So what, those are some stories I know you had pulled out that you didn't get a chance to go over. You want to uh, mention any of those? Yeah, one uh, particular, uh, actually put a link in for uh, a case that's called State versus Man. It's located at 13NC263. It's from 1829. And it's really a precursor to the Casual Killing Act. This is one of the case, one of the first cases that actually uh, reached the state supreme court level of any case, any state, and it dealt with uh, it dealt with battery. In this case, it wasn't dealing with an actual murder, but again, it started there. Like, like we say, the Casual Killing Act became codified, but it was actually going on long before any of these things. And they just put it on the books to say, okay, well, how are we going to deal with this when cases start coming before us? So now that there are actually laws, you know, outlawing any type of punishment towards them, then we're covered. It was sort of like a CYA type thing. So anyone that's interested in reading the case, you know, it's a short little uh, brief on it. It's from 1829, and it's called State Versus Man. The other thing I wanted to, I guess, dispel a myth, and I'll be real brief with it. You know, when we talk about police killings, because there's always the pushback as to, well, more white people get killed, you know, every year by police officers. And when we do any type of quote-unquote analysis of police killings, you know, it'll show that in, in absolute numbers, more white people are killed in police shootings than black people because one of the reasons is that whites make up 62% of the population, blacks make up 13% of the population but then when you take a rougher look at that and you say well 62% of the of of uh, whites are Whites make up 62% of the population, but only 49% of those killed by officers are white. And then you look at the same thing where the blacks make up 13% of the population, but make up 24% of those fatally shot and killed by police. Then you start seeing, okay, and that means when you break down the numbers, blacks are two and a half times more likely to be killed than white Americans by police officers. So people aren't looking at the numbers in the in the right manner. The same way they do with the with the the uh fallacy of black on black crime. You know, it's the same way. You don't look at the numbers right, of course, you can get any information out of it. But when you look at the numbers in the correct way, then you see what they really point out to you. And that's all I wanted to add, Max. Yeah, the numbers don't lie unless you're using that alternative fact stuff. <laughs> Or right. fallacies of the average. Uh, Fallacy of the average. Very often. <clears throat> um, yeah, it does, I cover just about everything that I could cover, man. I, I, like to, I like to keep my eyes on the prize, keep my eyes on the, the bigger picture that spans uh, centuries now. 
and also to keep my eyes on the finish line, what it is we're trying to get out of all of this, what's the end game for us, and as I said before, an end to slavery, freedom for our people, an end to discrimination based on race or class, uh, uh, you know, equality. We don't even, you don't even need to split it down the middle with it. Just leave us alone a little bit, and maybe that'll do something. That's what Frederick said. That's what the abolitionist said. You know, we're asking for nothing other than to leave us alone, to get the hell out of our way, to stop preventing us from doing things, because that's what you're doing. You don't want us to be free. We just told you it's 400,000 freaking black men who are subject to a potential death sentence, and what's going to be the response? Nothing. You know, so you, you you don't want us to be free. You're standing in our way every time, and it's a genocidal stance that stems from your programming, going back generations all the way to the Casual Killing Act, because that's what it is today. We're casually killing right. people. We're getting away with it, and there are, are no victims, and there are no culprits. It just happens, right? All right. Well, I want to mention uh, our the people who help us put this show together and are responsible for us being here, of course, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Same Urge, which is uh, Quakers, the I Am We Prison Advocacy Network, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Shout out to the brothers that are being punished for organizing. I remember Crystal was telling me that they put them on a heavy lockdown uh, for their participation. And as we've discussed on other shows, people like Kinetic Justice and Melvin Ray spent years behind are locked up in solitary confinement for their participation in organizing to bring these things to light. Uh, so shout out to them. Also to Prismatic Dreams and Punks for Progress uh, for syndicating the program. We really appreciate you. A special thanks to Tony Crane, Sharon Smith, right. and Jeanette Smith. Uh, big shout out to those three. Definitely. All right, so we couldn't come up towards the end of the program. Was there anything else you wanted to cover before we get into our final course there, Yusuf? Nah, man. I, I, you, you know, this is my favorite segment, man. I wait the whole <laughs> show for this. <laughs> I know, right? I know, yeah, the show, ain't, the program is not over. It's about to get even better, and uh, it is definitely one of our favorites. We didn't do it last week, but we're gonna do it again this week and continue until its conclusion. All right, so let's go ahead and leave them with our final uh, comments, quotes. Yusuf, you want to start it out? Sure. Uh. You know, I'd like to close out with two quotes by Brother Malcolm, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. You know, I always make the one quote, if you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. But I even came across an even better one from him. And I think it it's it's sort of like the next step in this progression where he says, nobody can give you freedom. Nobody can give you equality or justice or anything. If you're a man, you take it. And that's plain and simple right there. Ain't that the truth? All right. Um, This is my uh, final comments for the evening, and uh, I'll leave you with a quote. You know, I was telling Yusuf earlier that I've been under some, uh, I guess, some duress trying to, deal with circumstances. And I don't just mean the COVID virus. I mean, as my position as kind of a hyperlink, I'm in communications with different types of groups and organizations all the time. And everybody has their own agenda that they're following. 
And it's real hard to get everybody on the same page about ending slavery and freedom. Usually it's, you know, Max, if you help us with this religious thing, we'll help you with the slavery. Or, you know, Max, if you help us with this national identity thing, we'll help you with the slavery. Or, you know, Max, if you help us get our land, we'll help you with the slavery. And it goes on and on and on. Can't we just talk about getting freedom for somebody? Why does it have to be attached to everything? So, and sometimes freedom is the end goal. And here's my quote. I build no system. I ask an end to privilege, the abolition of slavery, equality of rights, and the reign of law, justice, nothing else. That is the alpha and the omega of my argument. To others, I leave the business of governing the world. Pierre Joseph Pradon. Peace. Till next week. Yeah, that's great, Max. So going into our final segment, in tonight's Bridging the Gap segment, we return to Ozzie Davis Reed's Frederick Douglass with Part E, North Star Values and Walking the North. This will be followed by Andre Day, Stand Up for Something featuring Common. Oh, man, where you find that one, Max? But we hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy tonight's show, that you learned something from it. Remember, you can always uh, access archives to our show by visiting abolitiontoday.org. Our uh, abolitionist soundtrack is available at YouTube slash abolitiontoday. Remember to check out our archives. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon all of you. Abolitiontoday.org. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. In December 1847, I began the publication of the North Star in Rochester, New York. There were many times when in my experience as editor and publisher, I was very hard-pressed for money. But by one means or another, I succeeded to keep my anti-slavery banner steadily flying during all the conflict from the autumn of 1847 till May 1863, when the Union of the States was assured and emancipation of the slaves was an accomplished fact. Editing and publishing a weekly paper with its nights and days of toil and thought, compelled often to do work for which I had no educational preparation, was a difficult project. But I've come to think that, under the circumstances, it was the best school possible for me. It obliged me to think and read. It taught me to express my thoughts clearly and was perhaps better than any other course I could have adopted. Besides, It made it necessary to lean upon myself and not upon the heads of our anti-slavery church to be a principal and not an agent. I had an audience to speak to every week and must say something worth hearing or cease to speak altogether. There is nothing like the lash and sting of necessity to make a man work, and my paper furnished the motive power. If I have at any time said or written that which is worth remembering or repeating, I must have said such things between the year 1848 and 1860, and my paper was a chronicle of most of what I said during that time. However, I found it hard to get credit in some quarters either for what I wrote or what I said. While there was nothing very profound or learned in either, the low estimate of Negro possibilities induced the belief that both my editorials and speeches were written by white persons. I doubt if this skepticism does not still linger in the minds of some of my democratic fellow citizens. 
My pathway was not entirely free from thorns in Rochester. The vulgar prejudice against color, so common to Americans, met me in several disagreeable forms. My children were not allowed in the public school in the district in which I lived, owned property, and paid taxes, but were compelled, if they went to a public school, to go over to the other side of the city to an inferior colored school. I hardly need say that I was not prepared to submit tamely to this proscription any more than I had been to submit to slavery. So I had them taught at home for a while. Meanwhile, I went to the people with the question and created considerable agitation. I sought and obtained a hearing before the Board of Education, and after repeated efforts with voice and pen, the doors of the public schools were opened and colored children were permitted to attend them in common with others. There were barriers erected against colored people in most other places of instruction and amusement in the city, and until I went there they were imposed without any apparent sense of injustice or wrong and submitted to in silence. But, one by one, they have gradually been removed, and colored people were allowed to enter freely all places of public resort without hindrance or observation. This change has not been wholly effected by me. From the first I was cheered on and supported in my demands for equal rights by a number of white and Negro men and women of Rochester. One important branch of my anti-slavery work in Rochester, in addition to speaking and writing against slavery, must not be omitted. My position gave me the chance of hitting the old enemy some telling blows in another direction than these. You can have all the money in your hand, all the possessions anyone can ever have, but it's all worth its treasure. True worth is only measure, not by what you got, but what you got in your heart. You can have, you can have.
us to understand Ain't here to judge, just to take a stand The greater plan, the creator's plan Let's all rise like the day began Reach out and touch with the Savior's hand On rock we stand like his native land Let the ways of love be the ways of man 